I am so glad to have the opportunity to preach this morning. (laughs) And I want to say a big thank you to our worship team for last week. Man, good stuff. Good stuff, right? Um, Pastor Dylan did tell me that he was going to get up this morning and say, Pastor Allen really feels like Holy Spirit's leading him to preach two sermons today instead of having a time of worship. Um, But we didn't. Instead, um, we are jumping back into our series on vision and values, which we began four weeks ago, and we're now in week two of. Um, So as part of that, like, I don't expect you all to remember what I preached on four weeks ago. Um, Many of you can't even remember what I preached on last week. I did have somebody who this last week just mentioned to me, and and it was just a, if you want to bless your pastor, this is what you should say to them. Uh, This person came to me and said, you know, Pastor Allen, I just, I went back and I listened to that sermon that kicked off this series and and, uh, just was blessed by it again. That's what you say to your pastor if you want to bless him. So um, I totally made it up, I'm sure, but it really blessed me. Um, But we also, we kicked this series off four weeks ago expecting to kind of take it week by week, and that's not how things have gone, and we trust the Lord in that and the Holy Spirit to just lead us week by week, and so we're thankful for his leading, and that's okay. We don't need to have everything go the way we expect it to go, and and God is faithful in that, but here we are in the second week of this series on vision and values, and I I do need to, I I can't go back and re-preach that sermon, which was so vital for kind of setting up where we are as a church and kind of where we're headed, but I do want to just quickly kind of re-hit again, because these words are all kind of words that can sound like buzzwords for us, right? Because we have a mission as a church, we have purposes as a church, we have vision as a church, we have values as a church, and if we're not careful, that can all kind of turn into just a bunch of buzzwords that don't really mean anything, and that's what we don't want. I hate that. I hate when I go and I just feel like I hear a bunch of buzzwords, Okay, and, and, and that there's no depth to it, and there's no meat to it, and there's no substance to it. And so I really want us to kind of see what we're talking about when we talk about vision and values. We as a church have a mission, and this mission does not change. It's what God created us for and brought this church together as part of the larger church. Scripture is really clear that the, the, the highest goal, the greatest mission of individuals who are, um, well, humanity as a whole is to bring glory to God. And so as a church, that's our mission. Our mission is to, to glorify our great God, to bring glory to our great God by all means. That's what our mission is. That doesn't change. And then we have purposes. And these purposes for us are what, as we were formed as a church, as we, were, as we were incorporated as a church, what was laid down for us in our constitution and bylaws, that we are honoring the spirit, we are pursuing true worship, we are building community and we are advancing the kingdom. These purposes are something that should not change, and if they do change, they should be very slight changes, because these things remain the same for us. This was established long ago for us, and we still fulfill that. But the culture does change, right? The world around us changes. Opportunities change. Needs change. And so to that end, how we go about fulfilling those purposes and our mission changes. 
And that's what our vision is. Our vision is how do we go about doing what God has called us to do today? And how do we go about doing it tomorrow and the next day? Where do we see God leading us and bringing us? And and how do we participate in that? What needs can we meet? And how can we go about capitalizing on the opportunities that God has brought around us? That's our vision. But how we go about that, it's, it's important that we have rails, right, that keep us from getting too far out one way or the other, because we could accomplish that mission in a whole lot of different ways. If our mission is to declare the glory of our great God, boy, then we could invest tons of money into megaphones and tons of money into soapboxes. And you could get out on your front lawn and you could do that and you could be accomplishing the mission which God has for us. But what our values do is they provide for us kind of some rails to say, okay, how do we go about accomplishing what God has called us to do? And so our values are those things that are inside of us, those, those white-hot things in my heart that really guide the way I go about what God has called us to do. It's our heartbeat. And so we talked about four weeks ago that first value, which really kind of laid out one of our core kind of visions moving forward. And that was that the best work moves outward. I'm convinced of this fact. That the way God works is he doesn't start on the outside of us and work inwards, but he does it just the opposite. He starts on the inside of us and then that works outwards. Right? And in the same way God does that, he calls us to do that. Right? He does something in me, not just to change me, but to change my family and to change my friends and to work in their lives as well. And he puts us where he puts us, not just to affect me, but to affect those around me. And I'm, I'm convinced of the fact that God is not a fan of hopscotch. I don't believe he skips the person who's right next to me in order to reach somebody who's further away from me. I believe he starts here and then it moves outward doesn't mean I can't reach that other person, but if God put me right around somebody else, he does that for a reason. So I believe he's doing something in this church, and I believe he would have us do and, and participate in his work in a, in a kind of concentric circles moving outwards, and I believe that's the way God works. I believe the best work moves outward, and that's a core value that I believe needs to be a part, and some of these things are aspirational, and some of these things are things that are already the heartbeat of this church. And so what I'm hoping to do as part of this series, if the Lord wills that, is to just rend my heart, show what God's been doing in me, in this staff, and in this church, in order that we might hear that heartbeat and get in tune with it this morning. So we're going to continue that series called Vision and Values. Would you grab your Bibles this morning? Because this is what we base it upon. And so once you have your Bibles, if you'd open it up to the book of Luke this morning. The book of Luke this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats all around you. Um, If you grab one of the church Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. Uh, In the church Bibles, it'll be on page 864. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is actually our gift to you. We would love for you to take that home with you and have those scriptures to read for yourself. This is so core for us to focus on the Word of God. I'll never get up and I'll never preach without bringing out scripture, okay? Because if there's no scripture, if there's no foundation here in the word of God, then everything else I might say would be of no value. And so it's important that we focus on this. So if you have, again, the Church Bible 864, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Let me tell you what's going on here. This is um, in Jesus's ministry, and specifically in Jesus's ministry, this is right as 
He's going through Galilee. He stops in a little town called Nain. While he's there, it says that there's this large group of people that are all there at the funeral of a young man whose mother was a a widow. And so her complete livelihood rests on this young man, and he's dead. And so Jesus walks over, raises this young man from the dead, right? And, And word spreads. It's part of that right after this story is over. It says that John the Baptist, who has been in prison and will eventually lose his head because of calling out Herod and Herodias and their relationship as sinful, he's sitting in prison and it says that he sends two of his disciples in order to ask a question of Jesus. And the question is hugely important because the scriptures mention it twice. It mentions it when John asks the disciples, and then it mentions it when the disciples ask Jesus. Very clearly, this is a question that really wants us to confront. Here's what Jesus or John asks Jesus. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That there is something about Jesus' ministry that John was not expecting. That there's something out of his uh, expectation. Jesus' ministry is of a different style or a different nature, and so John is asking the question. We don't know exactly what it was. Some people think, well, he didn't deliver him from prison. We don't know if that's what it was or if it's just of a different nature. All we know is this. Something about Jesus' ministry makes John the Baptist question, are you the one to come or shall we expect another? So the disciples come to Jesus. We're going to pick up in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. They ask that question. Jesus responds. Here's what he tells them. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus says, look around and listen. And tell John this, the dead are raised. Okay? Look past whatever it is that you're struggling with and see the results of the ministry. See that the dead are raised. And they're like, oh, okay, the dead are raised. And they head back to John the Baptist. But Jesus' motor is running now. <laughs> and he continues on. And he dives deeper. And I love where this goes. And so I want to, because this has been a story that I've been reading now for, well, three weeks now. <laughs> I've been reading this story over and over and over again. And it's just been mulling on it. There's a few things that happen in it that I, I don't know that I've got my mind and my heart around fully yet. And so I just kind of want to process this along with you, even as we're kind of going through and processing what our vision and values are, because these things aren't all finalized. They're not prettied up. Even just the text and everything, we're just doing white on blue. We're not, it's not all like, we haven't got them in pithy statements and all of that yet. All we're doing is we're processing this as a group. And so I want to process this story along with you as well. So John's messengers had gone. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds Concerning John, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I love the way Jesus ministers. I'm a fan. I think this is brilliant to me. 
because he brings back everybody who's there who would have gone out into the wilderness because when John came in his ministry, he didn't go and, and go among the cities. He went out in the wilderness and he made people come to him. And, and we're not entirely sure what Jesus is, is, how exactly Jesus is bringing this up. Like with when Jesus was baptized by John, if there were reeds there that were blowing in the wind, and so he's picturing that, but he's very clearly drawing a comparison to John the Baptist. And he said, was John the Baptist the kind of guy who was like a reed, where the wind's blowing one way and he blows that way, and then the wind's blowing another way and he blows that way? Like, is he that kind of a guy? Is that what you went out into the wilderness to see? And obviously he's being ironic here. This is not who John the Baptist was. Because remember, John the Baptist is in prison because of the fact that he called out Herod and Herodias for their sinful nature or sinful relationship. So he's not afraid to take a stand for something and regardless of the way that the wind is blowing, still stand firm, right? He's the guy that when the crowds were coming out to him, he looks at them. And I, I used to think that it was talking about the Pharisees and the lawyers here. But it says it's just a crowd of people. That he's out in the wilderness and he sees this crowd of people coming towards him. And he says, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? Right? This is how he greeted people. Like if you would have come in this morning and I would have said, good morning, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? This is John the Baptist. Right? He uses this image and he says, here's the deal. If you do not repent, there is wrath coming. And what you are is you're coming towards me. It's like you sense it. You know. It's like the picture is of like a, a nest of snakes in the grass. And there's a fire burning through the grass and they sense and they know something's wrong, something's off. And so all those snakes start slithering. And everything. Have you ever been out mowing? And all of a sudden you see snakes scatter and you run them down? <laughs> or, or have you ever been out, I'm out in the country, so brush hogging and you see bunnies going every way and you're like, can I, how many can I get, right? Before, <laughs> me either, I would never do that. <laughs> Highest score, three and a half. <laughs> but that's the picture. Like when they sense that something's coming for them and the rabbits scatter. But he doesn't say, oh, you fluffy bunnies. Right? John the Baptist here, referring to these people, to a crowd of people. This is not like the religious leaders. These are not people who are refusing John's message. But he is talking about the fact that we all need to repent. And he's not afraid to call it like it is. So he says, you brood of vipers, who told you to come from the fleeing wrath? You sense that there's something coming. And you know that apart from what he can do in our lives, we are nothing more than a brood of vipers. He calls it out. He's not a reed blown in the wind. So Jesus asks this, and everybody says, no, no, that's not that's not what we went out to see. He said, okay, so if it wasn't that, he continues on. He said, did you go out to see, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So he says, did you go out to see the latest style? Did you go out to see the fanciest clothing? Of course, that, that's not what you did. You wouldn't go out into the wilderness to find that. If you were looking for that, you'd go to the king's courts. 
That's where you find the people with soft clothing. He said, if you didn't go out to see that, what did you go out to see? And what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He said, you went out into the wilderness to see a locust chewing, camel hair wearing, guy, a man's man, with welts all over his hands because he just reaches right into the beehive and pulls out the raw honey and chews on it. That's who you went out to see. You didn't go to see a reed blown in the wind. You didn't go to see somebody who was wearing fancy clothing. You went to see a prophet, but he said more than just a prophet. Because here's a prophet of whom prophecy was written. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is about him. He has prepared the way for me. That's what you went out to see. Then he continues. And he says, and I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in all the kingdom of God is greater than he. This statement is massive. Because what he's saying is that there's a new age inaugurated. Right? The old, the, the old guard, G, uh, J- John was the best of them, right? He had the greatest calling. He prepared the way for me. And now, just by your association with me, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. That's not putting John down. That's le- lifting up the least in the kingdom of God. And he's saying the least is greater even than John, of whom was the greatest of anyone born of women. He's saying this is a totally new day, right? There's a new characterization of people. There's those who are born of women, and then there's something totally new. And those who are part of the kingdom of God are greater even than the greatest of the old guard. This is how he lays out who John was and what it means for them who are listening to his message. And then comes the first of these statements that my mind has just been going over and going over and going over. And I'm so thankful in my Bible that it's in parentheses. Because I think this is talking about what's going on underneath the surface. Here's what it says. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. They declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So he says there's two responses. And this doesn't, it's not happening on the surface. This is something that's happening on a deeper level than that, right? This is happening in the heart. This is happening on the spiritual level. This is happening on the emotional response level. That when Jesus brings this word, there are two responses. The first says, God is just. God's right. His judgment is good. 
yep, this teaching makes sense. Yeah, I'm for this. This makes sense and I'm with it, right? And the second response is rejection. And what is it that determines the difference? Whether or not they had been baptized by John. So depending on what their response to John the Baptist was, indicated what their response would be to Jesus. So in a way, I guess you could say right here you have the perfect fulfillment of John's calling. He makes clear the path to Jesus. For those who accepted his baptism, it's an easy path. For those who refused it, they walk away from that path. Very clearly, the indication is whether or not they accepted the baptism of John. Which why I think that's interesting is for us, when we talk about baptism, we think, boy, that's just what you do when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're baptized in water, and that's part of the reason why we're going to have a baptism here coming up. And if you've not been baptized in water and you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to be, right? But that's, that's an indication of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. He has made us new. But for them, that wasn't the case. They didn't have this history in 2,000 years of this being the case in order of indicating what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. For them, baptism would have been for those people who were Gentiles who wanted to come into the Jewish faith. Not born Jewish, that's okay. You can still come in. Here's how you are initiated. You are baptized in water. So this baptism is saying we're all on the same ground. We all need repentance. Each and every one of us comes on the same level playing field. And each and every one of us needs to come humbly recognizing we need to repent. Some people accept that. Some people receive that. So now when Jesus says, there is no one greater born of women than John the Baptist, well, except for those who are the least in the kingdom of God. They hear that and they receive it and it makes sense and they're like, I'm for that, Jesus. But for those who are self-righteous, boy, it's hard to say when I'm self-righteous and I've earned my righteousness, I need to come on the same ground as somebody who is a Gentile? Are you kidding me? And the problem with self-justification is that you have to constantly justify yourself, right? So if I made a bad decision before, I can't say I made a bad decision before if I'm a self-justifier. I have to justify that decision. And so that's what they do. They say, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. And the end result here, here's what the end result is. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, what did they do? Reject rejected the purpose of God for themselves. That's the end result. And all of this is happening at the heart level. So Jesus lays this out and says, this is what's going on in their hearts. Luke tells us exactly what's happening in their hearts. And then Jesus launches into a parable. And in my Bible, I don't have a good title on this parable. In fact, it goes by really quickly, and so many times we don't even call it a parable, but it's a parable. And so I'll refer to it, and I can name it whatever I want. I'm going to call it the parable of the spoiled brats. 
Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Jesus compares this generation to kids playing in a marketplace. So, marketplace would have been the place where everybody gathered in a city. So maybe the marketplace is closed on this particular day. So the kids have the run of the place, and they're playing. And the thing about kids playing, and I recognize this because this last week it was spring break, and so we had plenty of opportunity to play, and so multiple times we just said, no video games, no TV, nothing today. We are going to use our imagination. And the kids start with, oh, come on. But then they start using their imagination. And boy, it is fun to experience a child's imagination. And over and over and over again, the experience that I had was the kids wanted to play what they see the adults doing. Right? And so we're playing all kinds of games, make-believing, but it's all these things that they see adults doing. And that's the picture here as well, these kids in the marketplace playing what they see the adults doing. And the first thing they play, it says, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. And this language is very clearly, most theologians will agree with me on this, that the language here is the language of a wedding. How many of you played wedding when you were a kid? Oh, come on. Y'all are liars. So they're playing a wedding. They play the flute and they're dancing away. And then it says, and we sang a dirge and you did not weep. And this game is a game of funeral. So these kids have deep psychological issues. <laughs> but that's the game. And for them, really, truly, when, even when they were in Nain, remember how many people had gathered. This is like a community event, just like a wedding was a community event that would go a week long or even longer. It wasn't just a small celebration for a few people. It was everybody was included. It was the exact same with the funeral. So those things they see their parents doing, this is what they do. And so they play not only wedding, but they play funeral. But there's a problem. Some of the kids don't want to play. They say, we're taking our ball and we're going home. And I used to think that the point of this parable was that they were saying to Jesus, you won't dance to our tune. Right? Like, we played a song for you and you wouldn't dance. And we played a dirge for you and we sang a dirge for you and you didn't weep. But then I kept reading the parable, and I used to think that for, for years and years, I thought that was the point of this parable, but over these last few weeks, I, I don't think that's the case anymore. Because if you keep reading, Jesus gives us the explanation of the parable. Here's what he says. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say... He has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. It says, John the Baptist came, and when he came, he went out in the wilderness, and he wore camel's hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and he came not celebrating. When people came to him, he said, boy, you better repent. He came as a funeral director. He came saying, come and weep and recognize your sinfulness. He came separating himself as an ascetic, removing himself, not eating what he can scrounge, dressing in what he can find. And you said, he has a demon. And then along comes Jesus. And Jesus comes in a different way than John the Baptist came. Jesus comes not saying to them, weep and mourn, but he says, celebrate, the bridegroom is here. You'll weep when I'm gone. You'll mourn, you'll fast when I've removed myself or when I'm gone. <coughs> but for now, now we celebrate. And he didn't come separating himself out in the desert in the wilderness. He came into their cities. He participated in their weddings. He turned water into wine. He goes to their funerals and he raises the dead. He came in a fundamentally different way. He ate with people. He lived with people. He was different than John in that way. And yet, where John, they said he has a demon. They also said that of Jesus, by the way. Which Jesus looked at him and said, that makes absolutely no sense. I am driving demons out, right? So if I have a demon, how does that work? You can't, a house divided against itself can't stand. So that makes no sense. So here they don't call, say he has a demon. They say John the Baptist has a demon. They say Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That he's a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Because he came in a different way than they wanted. So John the Baptist comes singing a dirge, and they would not weep. And Jesus comes playing a flute, saying, come and celebrate with me. And they would not dance. Either way, they refused to respond. And yet, read that verse again. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What are the stated objections here? The stated objections have nothing to do with their message. Read it. Has nothing to do with the substance of their message. Has everything to do with the style of their ministry. They use stylistic objections. And they never even mention what the message is. John the Baptist came bringing the message. Repent. What did Jesus come bringing the message? Repent. Repent. Both of them, 
brought the same message. Jesus just said, if you repent, there's fruit that comes with it. You'll be a part of the kingdom of God, and that is a great celebration. It's like a wedding feast, and everybody is invited in, but you got to be wearing the right clothing. They brought the same message, but they're both refused for different reasons. Both are stylistic, or at least that's what they say. That's their stated objective. We know what the real issue is because it says it in parentheses. Let's go back there. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. This is a heart issue that comes down to, will I repent? And if I will not do that, then I will find some other excuse for why I don't have to. Oh, John the Baptist, he's living in the wilderness and he's eating honey and, and locusts and wearing camel's hair. That dude has a demon. I don't have to listen to his message. And then there's Jesus. Boy, that guy is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's eating and he's drinking. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And he is, he's, he's friends of the worst of the worst. I don't need to listen to his message either. They refuse to deal with the message, and the excuse that they use is the style of the minister. And when Jesus says, what shall I compare this generation to? He is talking about you and me too. Because this is what we are like. We have this tremendous capacity to squirm away from truth that we don't like. There's a truth that confronts me. And I have a way, I can always squirm away from it. This is why it doesn't apply to me. This is the reason why I don't have to listen this time around. I can always get away from it. I can always squirm when I don't like it. And, and I think one of the big ways that it happens is style. I'm just convinced of that. I think we have the ability to regularly just say, well, I don't like the style of that, and so I don't have to listen to what the core of the message is, the substance of it. And one of the things that I would say is the core value of this church that long precedes me, I think it goes way back. I don't know where it started, but I don't know that I could even articulate it for years and then a few years ago, someone came to me and they had recently started attending praise and they said, you know what I love about praise? And I said, what's that? Is it me? And they said, no. <laughs> they said, I love that this church is more interested in substance than style. And there's two ways you can take that. You can be like, wait, what? Excuse me? Are you saying we got no style? <laughs> That's not how they meant it. They meant that we all come with different styles. And yet we congregate around the substance 
right? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, it's clear what that substance is. It is Jesus Christ. And all the other stuff, boy, that's nothing but shadows. Substance over style always. I think that is a core part of this church. And as your pastor, my style may not be yours. And I thank you that you have accepted me anyway. And some of you wear ties and some of you do not. Some of you dress up and some of you don't. Some of you prefer one style, some of you prefer another. And yet we congregate around the risen Christ. And it is possible and I think easier to congregate around a style. In fact, I think more often than not, that is what you find these days in church. But apart from style, it's the substance that matters. So in that moment, when there's some stylistic reason why you would not have to hear the message, can I say step back and, 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 and question some of the motivations and question some of the emotions. Because I guarantee you, those crowds that came out to John the Baptist did not like hearing that they were a brood of vipers. I guarantee it. Guarantee that wasn't easy. And some people heard that, and they said, I repent. And some people heard that and said, excuse me, I've worked hard to earn this righteousness, and I refuse. And as a result, this is, I think, the saddest statement in this whole passage. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. They didn't hurt anybody but themselves here, friends. They missed the purpose of God for themselves because they focused on the style when the deep issue was the substance. They used it as an excuse. May we ever be a church focused on substance over style. May we ever be a church that is focused on Jesus Christ. May we always congregate around the truth of the word of God about who he is and what he has done and what we are about as a church. Would you stand with me today? We're going to wrap this up today, and as we do, I do want to just give an opportunity because always, always, always starts with repentance. Always, always, always. We come to a place where we recognize, I cannot do this on my own, and I need Jesus Christ. And he is the only way, he is the only truth, he is the only life. So if you're in here this morning and you have never bowed your knee before the risen Christ, said, you are Lord of my life, I repent today. I recognize that I am sinful and I cannot work my way to God. I cannot earn it, I cannot justify myself. But if you come to that place today, there is an offer on the table. Because here's the way Jesus Christ came. 
He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the offer I bring. It's a celebration. It's a wedding feast and it's available for you. I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, but it begins with repentance always. It begins with weeping and mourning and recognizing my own inability to do it. And then the celebration begins. So this morning, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm just going to pray, and as I do, I'm going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. And I would encourage you to participate with me in that. Confess him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved, is what Scripture says. And so let's do that this morning. Father, we do come in this place in a way that our hearts are humbled before you. Oh God, without you, I have no hope. Without Jesus Christ and the sacrifice for my sins, there is no beginning. There is no hope. There is no life. I cannot do it on my own. And yet Jesus Christ came that I wouldn't have to. He came paying the price for my sins. He came that his righteousness would be mine. He came that his sacrifice would be enough for my sins and so I repent today I lay them before you again and I do declare Jesus Christ as Lord of my life I declare him as Lord I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead that you raised him from the dead the scriptures are true of him they are exactly right and so this morning I come not by my own ability but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me And Father, I thank you, I thank you, I thank you that Jesus Christ is enough. I won't chase after shadows. I won't chase after things that won't fill. I won't chase after those things that cannot satisfy. But I want the substance of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God in my life. May that be the case. And may we ever, as a church, ever, 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 be more focused on substance than style. May we never squirm away from uncomfortable truths using whatever excuses we can throw in the air, but deal with the truth on a deep heart level. And in those places we need to repent, bring us to a place of repentance by your grace and your mercy and your call. We thank you for John and the call of repentance. And we thank you for Jesus and the call of repentance and the promise of a wedding feast. Fill us again, oh God, I ask. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for it. In your name.